Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Gen AI. As always, I am joined by my partner in crime, Jamie. Hello, good to be here again. All right, fantastic. And we have a very, very special guest today in David Morgan. Hello, David. Hello, how are you both? We're wonderful, I think. <laughs> um, so, David, uh, we were just chatting with him a little bit around his uh, wonderful kind of um, life in in marketing and his and his very global experiences in marketing and the list just went on and on so we kind of lost you know ability to kind of recount all of these uh, all of his travels so I'm going to ask him now here to embarrass himself slightly to talk us about his his career up to date no that's um that's very kind of you to um well it's very kind of you to have me here and it's very kind of you to introduce me in that way I am um, I'm a marketing guy I've been a marketing guy for over thirty years. Um, some pretty big jobs in some pretty big organizations around the world. So global CMO for organizations, including Standard Chartered Bank, Samsung, uh, Nestle, Procter & Gamble, um, HBOS. Um, sure, I missed out somebody important in there, but, um, but large organizations, um, responsibility in some of them for over 100 countries, over a thousand people in marketing budgets, you know, uh, running to three billion bucks. Um, you can do a lot of fun and a lot of damage with three billion bucks. Um, but um, but now we're running a, a, a marketing uh, consulting group in Australia, spending all that time um, helping startups scale up, sitting on advisory boards, chairing a few businesses, generally making a nuisance of myself, I guess. All right, that is the good life. Gosh. It's it's the good stuff. So we're here actually today to talk about generative AI. And I suppose we're here to talk about elements that touch the marketing world. Now, we've talked about this often in, in the past. We've had lots of conversations, both in terms of the text-to-image type of systems, so things like mid-journey, stable diffusion, and so on. Also, a lot about ChatGPT, which is about content generation. And as somebody who come, comes from that field, I suppose my first topic I'd like to open up is from your perspective, and, and you know, it is early days, so I don't think anyone quite knows, knows where this is going to go. There's a lot of uncertainties, but based upon what we know today about the capabilities of these kind of technologies, which exploded on the scene over the last year or so, maybe a year and a half for some of them, maybe more recently for ChatGPT, I, I guess from your vantage point of view, what do you see as being most interesting or significant for the marketing industry as a whole? Oh, that's a question, isn't it? Um, you know, it, it, it's um, my, um, I didn't mention earlier, my, um, my, my, my degree, I, I have a master's in um, English literature um, from Edinburgh a long time ago. I read lots. One of the things that I've read most is dystopian novels. I love the dystopian um, uh, approach and projections and the movies that go along with them. Philip K. Dick, do um, do robots dream of electric sheep and all that sort of stuff. I think it's um, it's always been a fascination for me, but it's always been something that's not been real. And I think you know, within the last twelve months, many of the predictions, if you look at them as predictions in many of these places, have started to play out, and you can see the potential for them to play out in the future. So. I don't know if you're talking to the right guy because I'm probably less optimistic about the future colored by the dystopian past um, in my, um, in just my interest, but in terms of, in, in terms of marketing and, and again, I'm, I'm less optimistic about the future for marketing as a function than um, maybe others mm -hmm. have been. Um, and, and there's, there's pretty good reason for that. You can start at the base levels um, and you can start with the base levels with 
you know, the examples, and, and, and we were talking about this earlier, with the, the with the photographer that won the global competition for Sony um, recently by producing a photograph, um, you know, producing a photograph through AI generated um, and winning a global competition for creativity. And if marketing is responsible for one thing in an organization that other functions are not responsible for, it's creativity. And AI is now starting to erode that um, that functional approach, that functional skill or that capability. But when I think about marketing at a base level like that, they're spending so much of their time, so much of their people, so much of the organization, you know, an organization's shareholders' money ultimately, spending so much of that money on creation with external groups, advertising agencies, media agencies, um, all the specialty digital agencies. Now, as marketing changes because of AI and AI-generated um, approaches, a lot of that seems to feel unnecessary for the future. And it seems to feel like that's going to change first and fastest. Now, that's pretty scary. I've had 30, 35 years of my career with a dependency on creation, innovation, um, invention, um, and working with teams of brilliant people who know how to do that. Um, so to, 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 to learn that it doesn't need to be like that anymore, you don't need that level of service anymore, you don't need that level of expertise anymore, is a little bit frightening. That's the base level stuff that marketing do to get the message out, to get customers to buy. At the top level, though, Marketing's primary responsibility in any organization is growth, and it always has been. As a function, growth is the, is the primary thing that marketing should be charged with. That's changed a little bit with digitization and specialization. But marketing should be the, the, the group within an organization that grows a business. They grow it by essentially analyzing what's going on in the marketplace, analyzing what happened last year, analyzing what competition are doing, analyzing what customer trends are happening, and they strategize, take the analysis, they get the insight and they strategize, how are we going to use this knowledge to grow the business moving forward? And they plan and then they deliver. And that's really what the marketing function does within an organization. But again, if you think about the implications of AI models that can do analysis with speeds and capability that are infinitesimally better than what marketing humans can do, that can strategize, that can assimilate that information in a much faster, better way than marketers can do, that can then start to operate that information from a creation to communication to placement point of view. It's a pretty bleak outlook for marketing as a function within an organization. So I'm, I'm learning as much as I can. I'm a dystopian at heart, um, but I'm, I'm kind of like looking at it a bit pessimistically from a marketing point of view right now. So I've spent my whole career trying to be a one-man band. So that's taken me into filmmaking, photography, trying to create things myself as well as I can. And that's kind of dipped into a little bit of marketing, but mainly around the creative areas. With AI now, that adds mm, an extra element to a lot of people to do things themselves. So you mentioned that you've worked in huge departments, a thousand yeah. people in a marketing department. 
when skills are now able to be transferred instead of being so siloed where you do one niche specific thing where one person is able with the help of these AI tools to tap into different areas of marketing, do you see that kind of springing up uh, lots of smaller agencies, I suppose, like micro agencies, as opposed to lots of brands now have, you know, huge departments? Do you see that kind of tweaking and changing? I, I, I think that's the progression. I think that's the next progression step. And 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 it's echoed very largely by what happened when the introduction of social media um, was a marketing tool available to us going back in Australia about 10, 12 years when social media happened. The larger groups struggled to understand and to organize themselves in a way that was cost efficient for um, for marketers and businesses to use and who should be owning the platforms. And with privacy and with regulation and compliance, some of it locally produced and government generated and some of it multinationally produced. I was working at Nestle at the time and the the rigor that Nestle put in place was much more stringent than it was by the um, the, the government systems here. Um, but what happened was the people who were nimblest and the people who had cost operational bases to manage it better managed it best. So I, I mean, I I, I recall at the time um, uh, an agency of a friend of mine ran, Clive Burcham, who um, I think is is known to you. Clive Burcham ran an agency called the Conscience Organization. They were able to manage at scale social media platforms for major organizations in a much more nimble way than the organizations who were able to manage them for themselves. So there was a rise of them. What happened next was a lot of it was insourced because of the speed of response. And the speed of response needs to be more and more immediate because that's the expectation of your customer base. So having it externalized and with privacy and with speed both being priorities, a lot of it was insourced, and now we're seeing a drop in the number of social media agencies. But I, I, I do agree with you, Jamie, that the, the first thing that we'll see happen is the nimbleness and the creativity and the operating effectiveness of smaller agencies rising to help large organizations who are really struggling to understand how to get the value of some of these things. Let me, let me ask you a slightly different question. I think creativity is a really interesting angle and that's what you started with as well so what we might say is today a really clever marketing campaign might be a cool slogan a nice angle and then kind of roll that across a demographic with the view that you roughly want to hit 18 to 25 year olds let's say men or women with a particular ad for a particular product um i suppose the question in my mind is is it feasible or do you think it's it's reasonable to think that this technology, the, the, the hyper-personalization element of it will also kind of work here because so far I feel like we can do some amount of personalization today and that's how Facebook admittedly has made yep. so much of its money yep. by doing targeted ads and, and so on. But those ads are still one for a range or persona. Yep. Marketing's got really good at creating personas. Yep. But going forward, if we can be creative on an almost individual level, then would we not want to create slogans or indeed campaigns for every single individual? I do, you know, we do our, our capability. I, I, I mean, it's a really good question. Our capability to do that is probably 20 years old. We were able to hyper-personalize. I remember, I remember having a conversation with Fritz Seegers who ran Citibank for Asia Pay. And he was telling me when I, they were onboarding me that, they had technology that you could flick a button on your television. This is 20 years ago. You flick a button on your television screen and trade yen for dollars 
but it was the cost of serving that was holding the customer back and holding the organization back to do that. So the hyper-personalization, Digitas, I worked a lot with in, in New York in 2005 with Samsung. They were doing personalization that hadn't, the, the, the laws hadn't been written for. We were running ahead of the laws because we were trying to find out how to take advantage of some of these things. But it was cost prohibitive. And I think what has happened over the, over the, the course of the last two decades is the systems now are much simpler to use. They're much more user-friendly to use, so you don't need to be an expert to, to code and to, 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 to construct. Um, so we can get to hyper-personalization. We can get to individual messaging. Um, Australia is a little bit, in, in my view, and I, I, I'm always unpopular when I say this, but Australia's a little bit behind the world, the developed world on personalization. Um, we don't have Amazon in this country, and I always call it the Amazon effect. If you've got Amazon and you're operating off their voice control systems, um, then you're much more used to personalization to a point where you don't realize you're being personalized in the communication, in the two-way, in the intermediation of the, um, of the, of, of the voice system itself. Um, Australia hasn't had that yet. So we don't really understand what personalization is as an everyday functioning part of our lives, like some of the other cultures in the world do. But again, AI generation is going to help us get there and catch up much more quickly. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a great tool to do that. But you don't need to be too creative to do that because the tool will do it for you itself. And isn't that the ultimate tool for a marketer? And I love the way that you said the marketer, because it's singular. It's not a department of, you know, 100 people, 150 people. I, 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 the, the, the rule of thumb I always use is there's usually, a, there's usually a marketing person for every million dollars spent in, in marketing money. So you spend 200 million a year, which some of the big end of town companies are spending, 200 million on marketing, you've got 200 marketing people. But what the big difference I think we're going to see is you're going to get down to singularity. You don't need 200 people to run around, plus you know six or seven different agencies to help and support them and the money and the time that that costs. And I think that kind of brings you nicely into the, so what is that future marketer look like? Yeah. Because I, I suppose the question is today we have a certain skill set in this industry that does have now, I think, increased the awareness of data and using data because so many of the platforms rely upon that. So you create a campaign, you push it out, you track it, you understand how it's doing, you adjust it, you do all these things that are probably a lot more technical than I'm going to go with Mad Men as yes, my instructor yeah. video yes, from the 50s yeah. and 60s. Um, and so therefore is the future, and, and, and again, you already pointed to this. Okay, what, I found this on the web for the future. Thanks, Siri. I'm going to start the question again. Are you going to move it? This is a good occasion to do it. Okay. Um, and again, I think this leads us to the next really good question, which is what is that future marketer look like? Because today you've got a certain marketing skill set. Yeah, you have colleges and universities and degrees and so on that produce a certain caliber of person, someone who's kind of a little bit interested maybe in the data side, but mostly is interested in the creative side and, and, and the graphics and so on. How do you see at least early indications of this kind of technology 
is there a significant change in the skill set required or are these systems going to pretty much wrap around the current person and just kind of assist them and make them much much more productive it it uh, and of course i'm going to say this because it plays to me um but it's back to the future uh, if you actually uh, history teaches us so much but as a function marketing is not very interested in being historical but if you actually look at a lot of the marketing that we do today that we call influencers and we call content generation we call placement if you go back to the 1950s pre your mad men you know procter and gamble was running brand management they were running soap operas which were content generated vehicles to drop advertising in to shout at customers through and we were shouting at them to buy soap powders and if they didn't do it the first time we shouted we shouted and shouted and shouted and shouted and the proliferation of messaging and the content of that messaging is not really that different to what we do today the advantage of what we've done today and what digitization has served us with today is the ability to break it down and to some level personalize it or to incite it to different messages to different groups but marketing is much the same today despite the fact the industry has been totally changed by digitization. It, it seems like a really uh, difficult thing to say, but you know, for an industry that should be really progressive, the industry has reluctantly reacted to technical change throughout the decades rather than being at the bleeding edge of it. So when I talk about going back to the future, the way that the, 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 the past marketing system worked Procter & Gamble brand management system that most organizations adopted post-1950 that required the Mad Men approach of Madison Avenue to support, to help them shout their messaging. If you look at that marketing approach, it was always about general business management. General business management was you were responsible for four P's, um, product placement, promotion, and pricing. And you were responsible for that as a marketing person. You ran the business as a mini MD or as a mini general manager, mini CEO, and you had all of the functional re departments reporting to you. So you were a generalist, but you were a commercial beast. So you had to be numerate, you had to be statistical, you had to be analytical, you had to be strategic. And you were tested on that with the way that you grew your business. Your business grew with your career. Proctor was particularly hierarchical, one promoted job for every three contestants internally. Um, and you were, you were required to succeed by growing business. What's happened over the decades is that we've started to see specialization in marketing. Digital specialists, search specialists, social specialists, brand comms specialists. And, you know, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, 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 I sit on the CMO 50 judging panel. So we get to see a large volume of the top marketers in Australia apply every year. And what's very clear is that many of them are brilliant brand comms specialists. Some of them are digital analytics specialists, but there's a fewer number of them, a smaller group of them who are actually business commercial specialists and generalists who can run a business. And I think if you look at the specialization, and this is what worries me a lot, the specialization tends to be in creativity, analytics, metrics, uh, performance, and all of those skills can be replicated and done better and faster in an AI-generated world. So 
the skill that it struggles to do is the business leadership skill, which is the marketing generalist who knows how to commercially run and build a business by being an expert across the top of the T rather than the leg of the T if you're talking about T-shaped people. And it's that specialty knowledge and that collaborative knowledge and that how do we manage this business moving forward with an executive team who are all pulling in different directions? How do we manage this with the non-executive board who are representing the shareholder? That's a skill that I don't think AI can replicate very quickly or very easily. I have no doubt that it'll get there in the end, but that's where I see the real marketing talent. I'm not sure we're going to call them marketers though. They're already starting to change their name, those people, the people who have those jobs. Many of them are not coming through the marketing line. Some of them are called chief commercial officer. Some are called chief customer officer. Um, we're seeing different approaches at that level, and they're coming from different backgrounds, some of which are non-pure marketing backgrounds, what we would call pure marketing backgrounds. So, But they're strategic people. They're statistical people. They're analytic people. But by God, they're commercial people. And it's this ownership of commercial growth. It's what marketing has been responsible for. It's clearly responsible in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I wasn't a marketer then, by the way. I didn't come in until the 80s. But the commercialization of the role has dropped off since the 90s. And we're now seeing marketers doing brilliant specialty jobs, but not having the same commercial responsibilities and that worries me because I think that's where the function is going to ultimately be replaced. And it's a case of how long does it take to replace? One thing I found interesting, uh, particularly in Australia, uh, is how businesses have embraced or been pretty slow to embrace social media. I got my first social media job in Australia around 2014, 2015, went over to the UK, first social hire at a lot of different companies. And I feel like it's only kind of now that businesses are really waking up to the power of it. And I think it comes back to the personalization of social media and just being able to individually target specific people yeah. for their needs. I just wonder with AI, it feels like a similar kind of revolution as social media has been. How quickly or how quickly should businesses be jumping on this, particularly if those uh, those bigger ones that have big departments, how quickly should they be looking to maybe change those skill sets, find where AI fits into everything? Um, you um, you 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 use the future conditional there, and I'm going to use the past, which is they should already be there. They should have been doing this previously. They should have been anticipating this previously, and their peers overseas have been doing a good job of anticipating and preparing for it. And Australia's in, a, in, a, in an unfortunate position. We have some really good talent here and some really clever and well-trained people running good big marketing jobs in big marketing departments, but they're hampered because of the size of the population. So if you've got 20 million people or 24 million people or however many people live in Australia, your marketing budget versus your cost base doesn't allow you a lot of time for experimentation. And it, it has a tendency, and with the pressures and recession and economic um, contraction, it gets worse rather than better. So one of the reasons that social was a real difficult thing for people to embrace here, but much easier to do overseas, is 
relative to the costs of your marketing budget, social overseas was a really cheap thing to play with. And the more you play with it, the better you get at it, and sense it makes, and the more you do it. But in Australia, it was a significant part of the budget. Therefore, you're putting at risk your success for the year because you've got a plan that you know is going to give you a bit of growth, but social is going to put risk against that. So we're naturally, we're naturally very conscious of embracing new things without actually understanding whether they're going to help us or not. There's natural conservatism in doing some of that. It's not a talent issue and it's, it's, it's certainly not a smartness issue, but it's, I, I, I've always said it's predicated on you know, the size of our budgets relative to the customers that we can bring in. And I think, I think that's a really interesting area for general AI. So I've often heard that problem is that AI is great once you have scale, yeah. right? So a lot of these problems become very tractable with more intelligent innovations and algorithms and so on. And I suppose in this particular case, we've got something like ChatGPT, which is a pre-made yes. algorithm on scale. Yes. So it's already been trained or created and the future large language models will be much the same yes. as well. So it, that kind of problem goes away because you no longer need to estimate Correct. your own model. So up until now, you've had to go, right, let's go get our customer data together. My goodness, I've got 100,000 customer dates here, so I can probably run some of these algorithms on it. But now we have this you know, incredible amounts of data that's already pre there, and you just take it off the shelf and apply it and so on. And so I suppose an interesting question might be whether you'll see more marketing-based language models coming through, which are going to be specifically corporate and marketing driven in terms of what they're doing and how they're doing and, and so on. I suppose in your travel so far, and we talk a lot about what's happening in the space in terms of news and articles and things that are happening, what's something that you've seen even in the last five months, a relatively short period, that has kind of got you thinking about where that might go with regards to marketing? The, um, it, it, yeah, it, 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 to, to, to answer that question, but to continue the earlier point, there's about $9.5 billion worth of marketing money spent in Australia. Now, the equivalent of that, inflation taken out and all that sort of stuff, we've not really increased that or decreased that over the last 10, 20 years. However, half of it within the last 10 years is pretty well diverted to two companies, Facebook and Google, in this country. So actually, we're spending almost half as much to try and do the same again, as well as doing the Facebook and Google stuff on top, some of which is well understood, some of which is not well understood. But all of that money is predicated on a model where we tend to self-replicate our marketing. And in my view, a lot of the marketing we do is done by Anglo-Celtic people to Anglo-Celtic Australian people. And we're very good at that model, which is we are good at marketing to ourselves. And if we look at the marketing leadership and the marketing teams and the agency teams, and we look at the diversity of the people who work in those places, they tend to be Anglo-Celtic. It tends to be a dominated functional area. And it's not surprising. It came from Madison Avenue in the original stages. We're all good marketers. We're all trained in marketing. It's a great Western thing to be trained in. But Australia is the most diverse culture in the world. 52% of this population, more than half the population, are not of Anglo-Celtic descent. But we don't market to them. 
Now, it's not that we don't market to them because we don't want to, or we don't like them, or we want to ignore them. We don't market to them because it's hard enough with the budgets available to succeed with the communities that we know we can market to and that we know we can get success marketing to. So most of our money goes to the 48% of this country that is of Anglo-Celtic descent. Now, I chair a cultural business. We help businesses access the 52% of Australia that isn't Anglo-Celtic. And I am massively excited, massively, that we now have off-the-shelf tool that can help personalize messaging at a cost-effective level to be much more inclusionary for all of the communities that are in Australia. Now, if you think about some of those communities, a third of this country was not born here. A third of the population in this country was not born in this country um, of languages spoken at home. English is less than half the country when you actually look at languages spoken at home. So we all have ASX top 200 all has their English website. Now, we do it in English. We do all of our communication in English. But more than half the country doesn't speak English at home. So this tool, just within the last four or five months, the launch of it, allows us now very cheap, in a very cost-effective, in a very powerful way to actually start to be much more inclusionary with all of our marketing approaches and all of our business approaches to the to the communities that have not been and felt part of the, the tradition of what marketing has been in this country. Now, I think that's a massive shift for us. I think it's a massive opportunity for, um, for those communities. But the greatest opportunity is the commercial growth that it gives you because they're not responding to the current messages that they're getting. And if you start to include them and start to make them feel that they've got a part to, to, to play, they thank you with their money. They thank you with their purchases. They thank you with your engagement of them. So I, I, you know, in terms of dystopian worlds that I talked about earlier, one of my areas of optimism is this country is a cultural melting pot and we manage it really quite well, certainly relative to many other countries. Is it perfect? No, we're well short of perfect, but this tool is going to allow us to be even better at what we do than what we've been before. It's a really interesting one. I mean, from the video side of things, a new AI tool has just come out and it seamlessly translates your video into different languages. Like you say, a lot of people don't speak English. Uh, this was more, I was reading a, an article and it was more a global view, but I think 30% of the world speaks English there, thereabouts. To have your video to be able to be accessed by so many more people yes. just by seamlessly being able to change the language that it's spoken in is massive, yes. is absolutely huge. So, yeah, I I am looking forward to seeing how those kind of things happen. For accessibility, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, accessibility and how people can access this technology. Yes. From a marketing point of view, yeah, it sounds like a really good thing. And, and the language is the first step. And that's a really important step because any step is a good step. Language is the first step. But what we'll learn, because the system will learn for us, is what the nuances are, what the insights are, what the different relationships that need to be built are for the different cultural groups that we want response from because it will learn measured response from the different communities to different stimulus and we'll get better and better at doing it and we'll serve it in better and better ways 
And, and I think it, one of the interesting tests on this kind of stuff was um, they were trying to see whether ChatGPT could tell what was funny. Mm. So they kind of gave mm. it different different humor, and it would try and work out what the wit was involved. And with the most recent iteration, it was actually very good at dissecting things in a very clinical way, <laughs> and then telling you afterwards that was funny for this reason. And so it was kind of you could kind of reason through it, right? But that's a fantastic thing. I, I have seen it uh, written down that that is the ultimate test. That's what some people are saying is the ultimate test. It's not can it you know pass the bar, can it beat lawyers, doctors, things like that. It's really can it nail comedy because there's so many intricacies that go into comedy. You know, uh, you need an understanding of the language, an understanding of the you know what those people are really thinking about their world. So I think, yeah, when, when ChatGPT can nail comedy, which it looks like it's doing, I think that is it unlocking a whole nother thing because yes. it's proving that it's able to understand what we are like quite personally. Yes. And it, 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 I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, the, 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 what's his name? Dr. Hilton that left Google um, a week or two ago. Um, said something that really resonated with me. So a lot of things resonated with me. One of the things he was talking about was the ability for um, AI to manipulate us mm. as a human race. You know, he said um, along the lines of this will be the first time that um, something of a lesser intelligence will be in control of something mm. of much greater intelligence. He made the exception of Donald Trump being in charge of America. I'd make the exception of <laughs> my cat because I do think that my cat is much more intelligent than I am. But the 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 essence of what he was saying in terms of manipulation, it's learned. It's not going to learn. It's learned all about Machiavelli. It's learned all about the great manipulators, right up to our friend mm -hmm. Donald Trump, who's a brilliant manipulator and opinion leader and. You know, liar, if you want to believe him to be a liar and, you know, truth teller, if you want to believe the other side, but he's a manipulator. He manipulates news, the fake news that goes behind it. All of the psychology that's been written about manipulation, all of the serial killers that they've looked at in terms of how they've been able to manipulate their victims, that's been learned. Mm. Now, it's then able to mimic that. It's then able to leverage that. Now that's knowledge-based, that's knowledge-based operation. And that's what humor is as well. You have to be able to mimic the humor that Scottish people have, because we'll laugh at anything that involves an Englishman getting hurt. <laughs> you know? But it will understand that in me because mm -hmm. it'll understand the things that I laugh at, which is usually England not scoring goals against Germany with Frank Lampard making an idiot of himself, all that sort of stuff. It'll understand that in me and it'll mimic in me, but will it be humor mm. or will it be manipulation? And this is the stuff that really starts to explode. Well, yeah. And, and it's highly context-based just to bring it back to the previous card. Like that's the joke that you'll make to the, your Scottish yes. contingent, but you probably don't want to run that ad in Manchester, I'm guessing <laughs> for various reasons or Liverpool for that matter, but they don't have a football team, so they should be fine. Wow. Um, so maybe one of the, the final questions I, I was going to ask uh, you was really around bringing back to something practical. So let's say that you have a listener right now on this call, listener on the call, that's funny, but on this podcast, and there's somebody who's working in marketing. They've been working in marketing for maybe 10 years or something. So they, they've they've got some legs, they, they, they've seen some stuff. 
They've done some interesting campaigns. They've led teams. They understand technology and how it works. So along comes out of nowhere this thing called ChatGPT, and the articles are exploding about it, and you know their news feeds are exploding about it, and so on. What do you do? I mean, you've seen technology waves come and go. You've seen sometimes they've been quite influential. Sometimes they've been quite overestimated. If you're somebody in that position, let's say you're 32 years old or something like that, and you see this wave coming at you called ChatGPT, and and some of the conversations like we've had today could be quite significant to your industry and your future. What is the right way to respond? It's a really it's it's a really philosophical question, but it has to be a really pragmatic answer for us as an industry to be successful. And you know, I'm just getting I'm just getting echoes of a conversation that I had at lunchtime today. I had lunch with a very esteemed marketer in Australia. I'm not going to name names because I disagreed with him fundamentally on this point, but um, I hope he's listening because. It's 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 us that has to discuss this and it's us that has to work this out. But you know, I've seen technology change. I mean, I came into marketing in the eighties. I came into marketing when when photocopiers were being introduced. We used to have a thing called a Gestetner, which was an a, a paint based <laughs> handle thing. It was like it was like um, silt screening for copy. So photocopiers was a bloody great innovation. We had a secretarial pool in the marketing department, which you, nobody has now. The secretarial pool all had manual typewriters. We moved to word processors long before we moved to laptops and PCs. We had um, we had no mobile phones. We had no computer. We had no internet. We had no email. We had paper that came in our in trays that we had to deal with. There's been massive change. There's been massive change in our work approach, not just as marketing people. But when I was having lunch today with, with this gentleman who I do really respect, we were talking about the impacts of AI. And he shrugged his shoulders and he said, it's just another tool. And everything that I've mentioned, email, laptops, photocopiers, mobile phones, to me, they're tools. We control them. We can switch them on. We can switch them off. We can limit them. We can regulate them. We are in full control of what's going on. That includes the internet. And sure, there's the dark web and all that, but there's a control of it because there's an observation of it and there's an interrogation of it. I fundamentally disagreed with my friend at lunchtime today because I don't see what's happening now as a tool. I do see it as something that's more intelligent than us. It has pattern and knowledge that we can't control because we don't have the mental capability to one, see what it sees, scrape what it scrapes, process what it processes. And two, if it's manipulating us, it will manipulate us in a way that we don't understand we're being manipulated. And that is a dystopian, scary, scary place to go. But I don't think it's a tool. I think it's to your much earlier point in the introduction where it changes us. Hmm. We change. Our behaviors change. Culture changes. Our society rules change. Because this thing really is a different way to live our lives. And I don't, 
as much as I've seen change in my lifetime, my father saw an enormous change in his lifetime. I don't think we've ever seen anything that's going to change us as much as this. And we don't know what that looks like, whether we're marketers or not. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think misinformation is going to be a real downside yes. to what is going to happen with with this rise of AI. But just back on the marketing side of things, I mean, imagine having this tool where it watches you every day. So you leave your house at 9 a.m. in the morning, you drive off to your work, do whatever you do during the day. I'm a marketer and I want to nail you down. I want to sell you something. I could put in your daily movements and you know everything that you bought at the cafeteria that day, uh, the conversations that you had, say I had access to everything that, that you do during that day. Then I could ask ChatGPT, maybe a different AI program, what would be the best way to target this person? And then you can scale that up and it could give you little insights that you may not know. It would say, okay, well, I noticed that at 9.15, he looks at his phone every day and that's the time to hit him with something. Or he starts Googling about a trip to Fiji. I think from that point of view, having it as a, a mate to rely upon, an assistant kind of thing, will give you so many more insights into the way kind of people operate yeah. and, and, and able to sell to them as well. And, and then maybe just to add to this, I think we, we can elevate this a little bit to say, I think what you described, Jamie, is, is a great picture of how you do micro habits formation and you kind of micro, micro yeah. behavior. I think with this system, drawing on David's point a moment ago, the idea of having a digital agent, which is a, your friend, is also on the table, which basically means that you have a relationship with this thing. So if we talk about marketing and engagement, we're talking about marketing having struggled with establishing a close enough engagement. It kind of knows you, but at the end of the day, it just puts a piece of paper in front of you, an image, a sentence, a word, and that's all that it can do still from a kind of a, an arm's length. It maybe times it really well, but that message still comes from an arm's length, from an alien, from someone you don't know, from a company you never heard of, from, from a from a kind of a thing that you've never seen. Whereas I think here you may have the option, I'm kind of future running here, um, of saying, no, 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 we actually own a, we actually borrowed some time from your digital agent friend. You have a digital agent friend that's provided by Apple. Yes. And any marketing company can buy <clears throat> some some um, brownie points with a digital agent. And the digital agent, when you ask them, hey, what kind of shoes do you think I should get? You go, well, actually, you know what? Um, processing, uh, yeah, Nike, Nike are great. Yeah, you yeah. should you should think about Nike. Yeah, awesome. And 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 so now it's no longer an arm's length advertisement from Nike. It's your best friend. It's a little bit like how Tupperware parties used to work and the whole yeah. kind of friend marketing. You should, you know, if I can get your friend to give it to you, then you're more and readily accepted, and you know, your friend will get a piece of that action. But I and and that kind of model works, but it, it kind of it destroys some of the social fabric of, you know, friends or non-friends and, and so on. But I find it interesting whether this kind of digital agent will become that type of marketplace. Well, it's weighing in on, on the authenticity and that relationship that you have, mm. really, isn't it? I mean, that's been a, an interesting thing to go back to social media that I've seen. A lot of businesses struggle with social media because they don't come across authentically. Mm -hmm. They seem like a business and they are a business, but that's fine. But they're trying to be something they're they're really not. And so instead, what we've seen is the rise of these kind of micro content powerhouses that are really agile and very authentic because people yeah. can tell that it's authentic. So yeah, imagine you've got your AI avatar mate who knows everything about you. You talk about everything. What should I wear tonight? And if you can tap into that authentic relationship that you have with this thing, you trust it. 
And this is why influencers and the rise of them has been a huge thing because people trust influencers. I just wonder where that's going to end, really, because it could be a golden ticket for marketers. It it it, it could be I mean, people trust influencers. People trusted um, what was his name um, Ronald Reagan when he was doing the cigarette advertising in 1952. There's no change in terms of the way that we're influenced by celebrity or famous or whatever. But the 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 interesting thing is again the the the, the whole debate was had around buying influence on a device with Alexa in the US five years ago, six years ago, from a marketing point of view, where you genuinely authentically thought you had a relationship with Alexa as a device. And if you asked it, if you searched for best insurance or best chocolate biscuit to eat, it would genuinely give you an authentic answer. But the marketers were fighting to get, you know, to own the word space, to own the recommendation space. This is, Australia hasn't had to live through that, which is a good thing, um, but it's going to get significantly worse because we can do that and we can do that at a personalized level and we can manipulate that individual relationship. But the thing that we haven't been able to do before is to do predictive influence. Mm. So it tells you what you need before you want, before you even ask. Mm because we've always been in control of, I'm searching, I'm looking for, here's what I want right now. And it's now able to tell us what we want and what we need before we even think we want or need it. Now, if that then becomes manipulated by corporates and marketers bid to own the space to make those messages, it becomes a game of who's got the most money wins. And we start to really you know, narrow down the brand choices that are available to people. And brands start to become something that are actually is less important rather than more important because it's the satisfaction of need before it's anticipated, well, it's anticipated by machine rather than person. If we get to that stage, people aren't discerning as to what brand they want. They're just being served up what they want when they need it. The, 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 I, I, was, I was talking to um, I was talking to my wife, who's a great marketer, she's a much better marketer than I. Um, um, I was talking to her last night, um, and we were doing dystopian stuff. Um, she's a much more optimistic person in all of this fear on, on every part of life than I am. But we were talking dystopian stuff, and the movie that we both gravitated to in terms of what I was calling the nullification of humanity is Wall-E the kids' mm -hmm. movie that was made by Pixar, where humanity is actually expelled from the earth and it's expelled by computers because of climate change and all this. But humanity lives on a spaceship by a swimming pool, sipping cocktails that are provided when they're needed before they're anticipated mm. to be needed. And, you know, if ever there's a horrible dystopian nullification of what humanity can become manipulated by marketers. It's that movie. But I guess there's a counter argument to be made, but is that the end goal? Is that what people might want? I mean, you're sitting there, you don't know that you need a Coke, but you know, a Coke could come and, and you love it and it's great. Yeah. Thanks for the Coke. It just pops up because 
deep in your mind or deep somewhere, it can tell that you would like to have this at this moment. So yeah, I think me personally, I think it's an awful future, but maybe that's kind of where things are going. Yeah. And I, I, I think it comes back to the human condition, you know, and, and what is the human condition and what, what really does drive us? You know, the, 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 I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but, um, you know, Freud was very much based on humans are driven primarily by their sex and there's their, their desire for, for sexuality. And, you know, there was a wonderful headline in a newspaper a couple of weeks ago, and I think it was the Daily Mail that said, you know, our futures are assured we can have sex, we can have better sex with robots than we can with each other because the robot will start to understand what your predilections are and, mm. and all this sort of stuff. But it's exactly the personalization that we're talking about. Um, but really, is that what is humanity? Do we want experimentation? Do we want, or do we want to be satisfied, you know, to be served? It's, um, it, you're right. It is a very long conversation. Very long. One. So without necessarily opening it, I, I do want to respond as a, as a good old fashioned Eastern European response would be, which is, you know, life is pain, or there's a, this kind of reality or gravity or weight in pain. And not, not to mention that we should seek it out or desire it or want it. But, you know, many poets and writers through the ages have talked about this idea that discomfort or, or discovery and so on, or the best things happens through efforts and pain and so on. So I think, I think, these systems will learn to give that to us as well. Yes. So at the moment, we're kind of drawing a linear line yes. saying, we just want more pleasure. And as long as you give us more pleasure, we'll just kind of eat that up and fine. And as the matrix once said brilliantly as well, well, I try to make a, a beautiful matrix for you, but you know, you end up rebelling against it. And so now <laughs> I made this dystopian one because you seem to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it turns out, yes, as human race, we enjoy misery and we enjoy, you know, discomfort and we enjoy all these different things as well. So, I think you're right that ultimately we'll end up wrapping these systems around us as human beings into various different facets, good and bad, up yeah. and down, everywhere else. I think the only thing we know is that generative AI, out of any AI systems that I've ever seen, are the most human and human-like in the sense that they're not based upon mathematic probability. Well, they are kind of, but they're not trying to predict the natural world. Yes, They're not trying to understand the flow of seas or oceans or tides or mechanical. They're trying to predict the next human word yes. in a human sentence, in a human context, in a human emotion. And so therefore they are like, and unlike any other system, massively wrapped around our narratives, our stories, our wants, our desires, our needs, and in some ways are more human than any individual human is, having you know encompassed that much amount of information. And if you go back to the pure, the pure function of market, I mean, the, the outcome of marketing is business growth. The pure function of marketing is to satisfy human need. And this system personalizes the satisfaction of human need. But do we really want that as humans? Is that really our human condition? And it's to your point, it's not what the poets wrote about. It's not the um, circumstance that makes us grumpy. It's not the Presbyterian Scottishness, which balances your Eastern Europeanness. You know, we we may not be satisfied when we're fully satisfied. And that's what we might learn from this system too quickly. Well, thank you very much. It's been a fantastic conversation today. Very insightful. Uh, covered Wally, 
We got to the some <laughs> got to some great deep areas too. So no, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, and as always, yeah, we'd love to see you again. No, thank you. It's great, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you.